Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 26. We're still waiting for copies of Alvin, the story of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., Liberty Records format films in The Alvin Show. A reminder that I'm scheduled to be on Stu's show live on April 22nd to discuss this book, and also I have appeared recently on Phil Hall's online movie show to discuss it as well. I don't have an air date for that. Our guest today has been a professional cartoonist since age 14. He was a curator for the Toonseum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I had an Harvey Art show about 10 years ago. He has written a few books, including The Three Little Pigs Burgers and A Celebration of Animation. Currently, he has a regular comic strip panel called Maze Tunes. Here he is, Joe Waz. Okay, on the phone today I have Joe Waz, and I just want to know a little bit more about you, so tell me how you became uh, who you are, because you have a lot of different talents. A lot of um, bizarre skills that I sort of try and piece together into one career, don't I? Um, uh, I actually um, probably best known as a um, maze artist, um, drawing cartoon illustrated mazes. And I started drawing cartoons when I was about uh, four years old. My parents caught me drawing on the walls with a crayon. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they didn't get mad, they didn't yell, they taped paper up on the walls and said, go ahead, and, and I've been drawing ever since. And um, I guess, you know, cartooning has always been uh, the, sort of the biggest part of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at everything I do, it's sort of all connected to that, whether it's running a cartoon museum or being a cartoonist or doing voiceover work or the mazes or my workshops, it's, it's all connected to cartooning. Wow. And, of course, we'll talk about all that. I was just going to kind of just give you a chance to say how it started. Um, now, when you started drawing, did you have, like, I know you do maze tunes, which we'll talk about in a bit, but did you have mazes in mind when you first started drawing, or did you just draw anything and everything? What was What, what did you tend to draw when you first started drawing? My, my earliest memories of drawing are of uh, Snoopy. Um, I, I really really loved uh, Peanuts, I still do of course, mm-hmm. and um, you know, my, my goal like many young cartoonists was to be the next Charles M. Schultz mm-hmm. um, <laughs> not realizing at that age that um, there can only be one Charles M. Schultz um, and uh, that was my hero, and that's that's my earliest memories of drawing Peanuts, it was a big influence on me um, as I got a little older, by the time I was about seven or eight, is when I really started drawing, uh, taking to the mazes. Um, I grew up in the 70s, and mazes were sort of a big phenomenon then, but um, they weren't very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I would make these mazes that were much more challenging and, and would just give the originals to my friends, and they would just solve them right on the originals. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have access to a photocopy or anything, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that was really how it started with the mazes. Was like, I just wanted to challenge my friends and, and would just draw these really complex mazes. I think I read somewhere you started doing mazes uh, about age seven, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I was about seven years old, and uh, that was so that would have been 1977. So, mm-hmm. so sort of the maze craze was sort of right at its peak, right, right around then. So you were seeing lots of maze books. You know, mazes were just you know everywhere. You, you know, they do back of cereal boxes, and, right. and um, you know they remain popular. They're still you know as popular as ever. But but that was certainly when they were uh, 
really just a, a phenomenon. Okay. Well, not to divulge your secrets too much, or if you want to, you can, but how does one do a maze? I don't know. I started off drawing uh, cartoons and stuff like that, like yourself, but then I ended up doing more writing. But uh, never really did many mazes, you know. It's, it seemed too difficult to kind of come up with it. So is there like a, 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 a key to doing it, or you just have a knack for doing it? How does it work? It's, it's um, I, you know, the, the, the parallel I give is, is Robert Benchley um, wrote a great piece, and actually I, I believe recorded as well, called, you know, just How to Build a Bridge. Mm-hmm. And he was just dumbfounded about this idea of how would you go about building a bridge, um, you know. And, and I think mazes have a certain similarity. It's just sort of this: you look at them, and you go, "Okay, I can see it. I, I, I know it must have been drawn and created, but I have no idea how you go about doing something like that." And um, it's really intuitive. So, so the first question I get most often is, "Do you draw the solution first? No, I absolutely do not. Mm. Um, the way I draw is I just start drawing Hmm. and I'll create a path and that path will split off into maybe two or three paths and then I'll follow one of those paths split that off into two or three paths then go back and close off some paths Hmm. Um, but I'm always leaving at least two paths open when I'm working on a larger maze in case I make a mistake Mm -hmm. Um, I work um, even when I draw mazes on paper I work strictly in marker I never erase Um, I don't use pencil to me that's sort of like cheating um (laughs) You know, and it's also, uh, I, I, you know, my, my audience, you know, I don't want them to erase. I want them to just try and solve the maze. So I have to be fair to do the same thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, although I work digitally now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, it's really a matter of just sitting down and just, I just draw it. And I, if um, the maze has a theme, um, like say I'm drawing a maze that I know is going to have a hippo in it. I'll sometimes start the maze and then draw in that character mm-hmm. and then work the maze within the, uh, the characters. That's one of the things that's unique about my mazes is that the illustrations are integrated into a solvable part of the maze. Right. Um, but I'll get about halfway through and then I'll start backwards oh, from okay. the maze. <laughs> um, starting to the finish. The reason being, I, I, I found out at an early age, everybody cheats when they do mazes. They start from the finish mm-hmm. because it's easier because going into a finish... Um, you know, when you t- come out of the start, there's multiple paths, but there's only one true path going into the finish. Mm-hmm. So if you go backwards, you, you've only got one path to follow. Mm-hmm. My mazes, um, I draw forwards and backwards, so no matter which way you start, it should be just as complicated. Okay. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Is like when you draw them and you answered it, you know, it's like, do you do it from start to finish or from finish to start or both? And apparently it's both. So. Yeah, I, I do both. Most maze artists don't. A lot of them will just start to start and keep going, but I, I do both. Mm-hmm. Of course, it always comes to mind. I'm sure you've seen it, the puzzle pages that were in the Mad Comic Book, where it just shows them going around the maze to get to the end instead of going through it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and I love, you know, I love sort of. Every April Fool's Day, I do a maze that can't be solved. Right, um, okay. So I, I, I love doing things like that, too. And, well, well, that brings up a question. I mean, it's like, have you ever had one that you didn't intentionally make it unsolvable? Or, you know, and then people say, hey, you know, not for April Fool's, just a general one. Or you just make sure that it does work before you submit I'm, it. I'm very good at making sure they do work because I'm very careful. I'm keeping multiple paths open. Okay. Only one time, and it's a great one to have it happen on. I was creating a maze for Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was going to be for one of their museums. Mm-hmm. And um, it was six feet high by 12 feet long. 
uh, the, the um, uh, paper I was drawing on. And I got about halfway done, and I, I draw in Sharpie for the mural mazes, and I realized I had quite literally just drawn myself into a corner and did not allow. I closed off all my paths. <laughs> And because it was for Ripley's, I knew it was going to go into the museum. I needed it to be perfect, and so I, I scrapped it and threw it over again. Oh, wow. But that's the only time that's ever really happened to me, and uh, oh, boy, it was a nerve-wracking. Now, is this the same one, I think, uh, I read uh, that you have designed the largest maze. I guess that would be for Guinness, or... So, uh, no, this is, so that was a different one, oh, and okay. then, um, uh, I guess that's going on quite a few years now, I created the the world's largest hand-drawn maze. Okay. Um, that one was four feet high by thirty-six feet long. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and that set the, that established the world record. I have since had a few people beat the world record, and, and people keep saying, you know, when are you going to defend your title? I feel like I'm, you know, this old west gut fighter. <laughs> There's, I got to keep looking on my shoulder for the next maze guy coming up behind me, but. Um, <laughs> That one, that was, I think there was over 150 illustrations in that. Mm -hmm. And it toured a bit, and then um, I sold it to a company in Changhao, China, that was displaying it at a mall. Mm. So um, that's what ended up happening to that one. Now, how did you construct that one? I mean, what, what tools did you use? Because you can't really do that on a computer, can you? No, that that's done with um, Sharpie, just regular felt-tip marker. And then I draw on this material called Tyvek which is the sort of indestructible paper. It's the stuff they, um, you know, they wrap houses with oh. um, when they're insulating houses. And, and or sometimes you'll see these indestructible paper wallets. That's the same stuff. Okay. But the, uh, so um, when you did that, I guess, it, did you find paper that large or did you just have to do it yeah, in pieces no, and the, join it together? How did you do no, that? No, that, the, the Tyvek stuff, because it's designed to literally wrap houses um, yeah. you know, in this protective thing, they have it in very large rolls. Okay. Um, so I found a roll that was four feet high by, I think it was 200 feet, mm. and I ended up using about 36 feet of that. So I, I can still go back. I still have another 100 and so feet left, so maybe I'll go back. <laughs> now, when you Good drew it, did you just lay it out on the floor, or how did you do it? Because, I mean, you have to have a pretty big space to work on it with stuff like that, right? So when I started out... Um, I actually took it to a couple different places to work on it. So I, it started at um, Jeppy's Entertainment Museum, which used to be in Baltimore. Right. And we had set up a dozen tables and laid out the first, I don't know, 20 feet on the table. Hmm. And uh, I probably got about 15 feet done. Hmm. And then um, I realized I wasn't going to have enough tables to keep laying out on the table. So <laughs> I would start working in gymnasium floors or... Um, and I was with the Tunisian. We just rolled it out in the Tunisian's main gallery, mm -hmm. and that's where I ended up completing it. But it, yeah, I ended up working on the floor, which, which um, I don't know that I'd be able to do that again. Being on, you know on the ground the whole time drawing right. was a bit rough, but maybe we'll see. Now, did you do it completely by yourself, or did you have assistance? I mean, Co completely by myself. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Just had to, I don't know. It was a very personal mission for me. So, how long did it take, roughly? So. <laughs> Realistically, um, I, it technically took months. It took about six months. Yeah. But mostly because I could only dedicate maybe a couple hours at a time to it, and then it might be weeks before I get back to it. Oh, okay. Because I was running a museum at the time. Right. Um, total hours probably took about, you no, know, I would guess 120 hours. 
still alive, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it did, it did take a lot of time. Um, I did have to solve it, and it took me six hours to solve. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a pretty good ratio, I think. Now, you, you said you solved it. Uh, well, how does one solve a puzzle like that, or do, you, do they just take your word? Yeah, it works. Or what, do they have people no, had, at the museums or wherever a, it was displayed to uh, I, solve it? Or <laughs> I had to get a sheet of plastic. A uh, big sheet of plastic uh-huh. uh, to co- cover over top of it, and then I took a red sharpie and um, solved it using that. I see. Yeah, the solution—I I forget we measured, but the actual solution, mm-hmm. because it was so tangled back and forth on top of itself, it was close to a mile worth of line. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so that, I mean, if you, if you were to take the line and stretch it out, it would have stretched over a mile. So it was—it was, it was uh, quite a lot of work. Now that size is it, it was is it displayable in one piece of big or it, it is, um, okay. but that's why it ended up finally selling to a mall. Is is okay. that I think they're one of the few places that could display it. You know, okay. there's giant mega malls, and um, it did display at a couple of museums, um, the Westmoreland Museum of Art, and we had to. It basically took up an entire room. It started on one wall near mm-hmm. the entrance, and then wrapped around the entire room um, towards the exit, and it took up exactly the whole room. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, going back, coming back to Earth a little bit. Uh, so, um, Maze Tunes is your. Is it a daily? Is it a daily strip? It's, yeah, it's it's a daily strip uh, through Creator Syndicate. It, uh, okay. Um, every day and Sundays. Okay. Um, so, how? Uh, let's see. Uh, how quickly do you do those then? And how, what's your process on working on those then? Um, I have a horrible process. I need a better one because my my creative process in general is um, to to spend months doing absolutely nothing, uh, and then um, about a week before everything's due, uh, I do about three months worth of work. Oh wow! Um, so I work very fast, but uh, I, I finally realize um, that I'm basically sort of this storage battery that um, I'm, I'm walking around you know during the day and you know i see somebody walking their dog and i think to myself oh that would make a good maze and that that stays in my memory somewhere mm-hmm. you know or i see just a pattern in a tree and i go oh that would make a good maze I, and i store that and then i i sit down at my my drawing desk and i'll spend you know um you know, maybe eight hours just cranking out mazes all day long. Oh, wow. And then uh, I'll do that for about a week or two weeks where I'm just cranking out a lot of mazes. I'll get myself about three months ahead. Mm-hmm. And then I'll sort of take some time off and then work on other things. And then as my deadline rapidly approaches, I'll start getting a mad flux of drawing again, which is sort of where I am um, this week. I'm sort of in my. Um, uh, actual drawing mode versus my uh, storage mode. Right. So, uh, so I've been doing a lot of drawing. Each maze, a daily only takes really a daily only takes a couple minutes to draw, mm-hmm. um, about five minutes at most. Um, and then, depending on the maze, it can take anywhere from a minute to ten minutes to color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can crank out you know a whole week's worth um, in about an hour and a half. Mm. Um, if I'm going at a good pace, mm-hmm. um, but the sun, the Sundays take a lot longer because the illustrations, it's usually a scene. It's not just a single character or a single object or uh, an abstract design. It's usually a whole scene. So those take a lot longer to construct. Mm-hmm. So 
a Sunday might take anywhere from an hour to three hours for a Sunday, which is still pretty fast. Yeah. And you said you did these on the computer then? I now draw on the computer. When I, when I first started, I drew strictly on uh, pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I used a, a flare filled tip pen, which is my favorite pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would you know, work two size on paper so I don't enlarge and shrink down. The reason being um, it would make the mazes tougher to solve because the lines would tighten up. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work the size so I knew exactly what I was getting. Um, after about a year of working on paper, um, I was still I would color on my computer using my uh, Wacom tablet, mm-hmm. and then I, I finally decided, you know what, this process is because I have to draw it, and then I you know clean it up, and then I scan it, and then I color it. I should just try using the computer, and uh, if anything, it looks so much better. Um, mm-hmm. People don't even know the difference, but um, I, I know the difference that actually the quality has has actually improved. So I've been working strictly on a digital process for the past. Um, I guess it's two years now. Okay. And when you were doing it on a paper, and I guess on the computer, because uh, I'm not sure if you draw that way because you can just enlarge something, but uh, what size were you drawing? Were you drawing like two times up or even larger? Or, uh, no, I, I draw two sides. Now, on the computer, I can zoom in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so technically, probably when I zoom in, uh, I'm probably at double my magnification. So, yeah, so probably about two up. Um but usually I, I start out just drawing to the actual size because I need to be able to see what it's going to look like in print because if those lines are too tight, when they print them, it, it'll blur together and the maze won't be solvable. Right. So, um, and then the Sunday ones, are those, like, even larger? Or, I mean, what's the dimensions on these? Um, so as much as so the date, they're both uh, about, the, mm. you know, the size of a regular, um, so the daily is the size of a regular panel. So that's like a three by four. I mean, it's like a three point two five by four or something. Like Dennis, and then, like Dennis the Menace or something that. Like a Dennis the Menace, yeah, yeah. and then uh, a Sunday is um, about the size of you know your traditional Sunday, like a, a Bizarro or a panel Sunday. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, and I don't have a splash panel. My splash panel would be integrated into the um, uh, maze itself. I see. Okay. <laughs> You don't have the Crime Stoppers textbook on the top, eh? No, no, no crimes. <laughs> which, you know, a lot of those, you know, were created so that they could accommodate different newspaper sizes. Right. And so, you know, now there's not as many newspapers, so yeah. it's not as important as it is. So, so yours has to be printed the same way, no matter where it is. You don't want to give a flexibility, like a, a, I, a long skinny strip or something like that. Yeah, there's, there's no flexibility in, in, in the format. So it does, you know... It does have certain limitations. Um, you know, I know like um, Wayno and Dan mm-hmm. who do Bizarro. They they do actually for their dailies. They do uh, two formats. Mm. They do they do both a strip format and a panel format, which is great because it increases the number of newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I'd have to basically just be redrawing an entire maze. Right. Um, and um, I, I found that that horizontal daily format does not work. Um. Mm-hmm. For me, it's it's just a little too limiting. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> and um, when did Maze Tunes start? I, I think you said, but I just want to. Yeah. Um, oh, goodness. Well, um, like it, it was. It was. It actually started running on on May third. Um. Uh, let's see. What kind of that's uh, I think my third year now. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's pretty recent. It's, okay. I, because... I think actually, I'm entering, actually, I'm entering my fourth year. Okay. So it's pretty yeah, recent. I, I thought I'd seen it earl, earl, earlier, longer 
farther back than that, but maybe not. <laughs> okay. Well, I was still, you know, I was doing mazes. I just didn't have the syndicated feature. So oh, I was I doing, see. you know, stuff for some magazines, things like that. Okay. But I didn't have a feature. Okay. Um, because I've been a friend of yours for a while, and we'll talk about the Tunesium and things in a bit. But um, on the maze, uh, uh, how did you get the syndicated strip? I mean, did you just contact the syndicate saying, hey, I can do mazes, or did they come to you? Or? So. So this is, uh, I'm going to give you the example of how not to do it. Okay. Which is the, ex <laughs> the exact way that I did it. Okay. Which was, I had I had left the Tunesium and about six months had gone by and I realized, boy, I, I need to do something. Um, you know, I, I, the reason I left the Tunesium was really to just sort of start pursuing my cartooning career again. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I said, I, I you know, I'm, I'm never going to be able to do a comic strip. I don't have... The temperament, the the humor. I don't have the um, patience and persistence that is required to do a daily comic about characters. Right. Um, I said, I don't want to draw the same thing day in day out. And I thought, what do I do that's unique? You know, what's my niche? And I, I sort of said, the mazes was unique. No one, no one does these cartoon straight mazes quite like I do. I'll do that. And on a, I think it was a, a Friday night. Um, I started probably around eight o'clock. I just started frantically drawing mazes. Um, I started sort of figuring out what the format would need to be, and I put the packet together in one night of about 26 mazes. Mm -hmm. uh, two Sundays and then the rest were dailies. And I put together a packet of information about me and, and you know, what my vision was. And I went online and, and looked up information about which syndicates, and most of the syndicates want you to send stuff by mail. So I said, okay, great, I'll, I'll print these up on Monday and I'll mail them out. And um, there was two syndicates that took online submissions, um, King Features and Creators. Mm. And I and I sent them off probably at about 5 a.m. on, you know, Saturday morning. And I immediately regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought to myself, oh, my God, I didn't get the formats right. I, this is foolish. Why would I do this? I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. So I started writing to other cartoonist friends who do comic scripts. Actually, um, I think Terry Liebenson, who does Pajama Diaries, was the first one I saw online and I'm like I'm messaging her like what am I going to do I said to Sam have I like are they going to punish me for doing this wrong is like they'll never accept another submission and she said don't worry nobody gets accepted on your first try <laughs> it, it's you'll wait six months three to six months and then they'll send you a rejection that's what happens to everybody and it, it's you know and then if you're lucky they'll like it they'll give you a few pointers you fix it and you send again in a couple months Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, that's where I am, but I'm not going to send the rest of these out. Monday morning, I got a phone call from Creator Syndicate saying, we love this, we want to do it. Wow. Um, it was just an unbelievable story because it never happens that way. <laughs> but it was it was something unique, and, and they thought it filled a good niche. And, you know, it could go on the puzzle page. It could go on the, you know, comic strip page, you know. So, right. um, so it just sort of happened out of new. I, I, I was clearly not ready, but it happened anyway. Hmm. And then has it grown in uh, popularity in papers and everything in the last couple of years? It, it, it has. I, I mean, as you, as you know, the industry is, is um, nowhere near what it once was. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, comics aren't getting carried in a thousand newspapers because there are not a thousand newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, I think right now I'm in about 30 or so newspapers, mm -hmm. um, which isn't bad. I mean, obviously it would love to be in a lot more, so it's slow going. Yeah, but um, I, I'm in interesting places. I'm, I'm actually um, quite popular in Sydney, Australia. Huh. Uh, 
it, it runs in the, in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, Australia on Sundays. Mm-hmm. And um, they run one of my dailies on a Sunday. So I'm always curious as to which one they run because I can pick whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I get the mail from Australia every now and then. <laughs> mm. And my books actually sell really well there too because of that, I think. So, um, so it's exciting. So how does that work nowadays? I mean, you know, because... You know, gone are the days like we were talking about. You know, peanuts used to be like in almost three thousand newspapers, and it's like obviously you said there's not three thousand newspapers anymore. Um, uh, do syndicates uh, just have different metrics that they do, or how do they? Cont- what What's the gauge to keep a strip going or not? Or do you know that? It it, it really is. I mean, a lot of it is. It's it, 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 and I knew this at the time. Is everybody said, "Don't do this because you're going to get rich. Do it because you can't imagine doing anything else." Yeah. And um, you know, you have to really love it. I mean, you know, Maury Turner, who did We Pals, mm-hmm. um, you know, he had been in a hundred hundreds hundreds of papers at one point. Right. But towards the end of his life, I think it was maybe only in fifty papers or so. You're right. Um, so he wasn't doing it for the money. It was because that was what he did. Right. He loved it, and, and it was a, a relevant and important strip, and he kept it going. So a lot of it has to do with the artist's passion. Is I'm sure the syndicates, if you're only in five newspapers and you want to stick with it, they're, they're going to keep with you. Um, it's rare for a syndicate to drop the artist. Okay. Usually it's the artist who says, I'm not making enough money at this, I just... I gotta go sell insurance or whatever it is. Now, is it, but, um, has that always been the case? I always thought if it no, dropped below a certain not... amount, they'd say, "Well, you know." Like an example that I know of, um, the late uh, Lee Hawley. You know, when he was alive, I would speak to him about Ponytail, and it ran for about twenty years or so, uh, maybe thirty. I don't remember the end date, but you know, it just kept dropping papers in the last decade, and he was set financially. So uh, you know, the way he explained yeah. it as they asked him it's like well it's only in 50 papers now do you still want to keep doing it so uh, you know but it seemed like they're at the same time kind of forcing him out you know too like yeah the, well the industry changed a lot I mean part of the reason okay. is, is it used to be um, pretty darn expensive to keep a you know a, a syndicated newspaper feature going because there were shipping costs where they were shipping the originals you know off to you know the colorist. The colorist was coloring it, and they were shipping it. You know to the uh, syndicate office, to, and then they would have to you know, ship all these plates and panels and stuff all over the country. And oh, you know, there was okay. a, the process was an expensive process. Even the process of selling the script, you know, you'd have to go to New York, meet with all these newspapers, carry them out, get the samples, where you'd have to mail out a giant packet of, of scripts. You know, you know, you do it all digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the costs have come down so much that, you know, it doesn't take the syndicate much to find out a newspaper's looking and to send out an email and send the link and, and that's it. They're okay. not, you know. Because I'm, uh, I'm used to the way it was traditionally done because that was the time I was actually submitting things when it was still the old way before newspapers kind of died, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then I gave up on it and I just never knew how it works now. So, the, but that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and, and the process now is, you know, I, I, I still have to send stuff in, and I just, basically, I do it all digital. I, I send all my, my dailies to the syndicate by email, and then um, they distribute them. And, and then my Sundays, um, you know, all, all, all Sundays are pretty much the same um, system. 
mm-hmm. um, that's online that newspapers then log in and then download them and plug them into their computer, you know, plug them into their uh, system a couple weeks ahead. Um, but yeah, it, it, it certainly changed. So on one hand, it's become cheaper um, to syndicate, but, uh, syndicate but on, on the other hand, it's become much more difficult because you don't have the number of papers, you don't have the same audience you once did. The, the era of, you know, Sites or is that just freebie for everybody? No, it's, it, it, you, you, <laughs> you technically do. Um, um, Go Comics uh, is where I'm, I'm featured online, and, right. and I love being on Go Comics because um, you know it does reach you know a whole new audience and everything. But you know I'll get my check every three months, and you know I'll go out and buy an egg McMuffin with that. Okay. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I was wondering about that because, you know, it's like it used to be like if you wanted to get all the comic strips, you'd have to buy like four or five newspapers and, you know, hope for the best and get everything, you know. Yeah. And then now yeah, it's all works. online. And it's like, does anybody really make any money if it's all online? You don't get a newspaper anymore. Yeah, you're, you're, not, they're not, you're not, the cartoonists aren't making I mean, there's some cartoonists who do, do really well online. Uh-huh. Um, but, but, you know, the bulk of us, it's just, you know, it's uh, a few extra bucks here and there, right. um, but um, you know, and that's that's why you have so many. I mean, most cartoonists sort of um, they have their syndicated work; they love it. It was their dream, and you know, just like me. Um, but a lot of them are doing you know middle reader books. They're doing you know merchandising. They're doing you know whatever else they can to sort of help subsidize that that income. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I was just kind of curious because you know, it's like. Yeah, I don't like to get too nitpicky about somebody's financial situation, but it's like I just know the game has changed so much. So I was like curious about how that worked. Now, yeah, yeah. prior to the the Maze uh, Tune strip, you were you, you worked at Tunesium clear to that point. You said, yeah, I, I founded the Tunesium. Uh, I was the founder, executive director. Started it in two thousand seven. Okay, and then I left in two thousand fourteen. And um, uh, that sounds about right. And then I, and then the script. Let's see. So yeah. So I think I'm in my yeah. I'm in my fourth year. Yeah. Is that? It would have been a year after I left that uh, Maze Tunes launched. Okay. And um, I did you? You said you left because the Tunesium because you wanted to pursue a syndicated strip, basically. I, yeah. I had taken the Tunesium as, as sort of as far as it could go. It it started out as sort of a. Uh, it's just a very small gallery within the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, right? And then, and then a year or two later, it moved into its own uh, location, a small storefront in downtown Pittsburgh. And then we added um, a second gallery attached to that, and a hall gallery, and an outdoor gallery. So we we grown substantially. But my vision was is is either it needed to be a full blown real museum and grow even bigger, yeah. which I hope, or it just, uh, I was going to be bored with it. Uh, and it just reached that point where the, with the board and me, we'd taken as far as we could. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said, okay, I just, just doesn't interest me anymore. I, I, I need to do what I love. After 
seven years of hanging other people's artwork on the walls, mm-hmm. you, you reach a point and you say, well, no, it'd be nice to see my art up somewhere. Right. <laughs> now, that's how I first met you, quote unquote, because it was never, like, I think I, this might be the first time I've actually spoken with you. We just are Facebook friends and things like that. But, I mean, how it worked out was um, I had done a Harvey Art show. Yes. Uh, with Andrew Farrago, which I interviewed on a previous podcast, and it was successful. And then the Mocha in New York, when it existed, uh, they called us up and they said, "Hey, can you send it out here?" And I never even once considered doing a traveling show, uh, but then I said, "Okay." And then I said to Andrew, "Well, are there other museums out there? I know there was Jeppies at the time, and I think Mort Walker had a museum at the time, or if he did, you know." But I, th- I knew there was a couple others. Yeah. And uh, then he mentioned the Tunesium was going to take it on, and I go, "Oh, cool!" You know. Now that's the only of the four locations. Is that the fourth one being Van Eaton Galleries in Southern California? Uh, of the four locations, your museum was the only one I never went to. Although I had a friend of mine take photos out there. Um, what what location was it at when the artwork got there? Uh, so that was the, yeah, the Harvey Street was that was the the downtown uh, location. Okay. So that was in, that was in you know what we considered to be the main gallery. There was two galleries. There was the main gallery and there was the the uh, Lusheimer Gallery. We called it. It was named after the um, named animator of and um, producer from Filmation, Lusheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main gallery was sort of when you came in the building, you had a gift shop, and then right into the gallery, and that's what that one was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I actually remember that uh, exhibit pretty pretty well. Did it do pretty well? I mean, like I said, I never went, so I don't know, and I never really talked. Yeah, to I mean, it was, it was, it was, it really tapped into. Uh, I always tried to do a couple things when we did any exhibits. Is I always tried to have a balance, mm-hmm. um, so that if I had something that was, you know, heavy nostalgia factor, um, I'd also have some contemporary. The idea was always that Grandpa could should be coming in there with their granddaughter and saying, "Oh, look, I, I want to tell you about Richie Rich." And granddaughter, you know, pulling grandpa by the hand, say, "Look, grandpa, SpongeBob." <laughs> and the idea they would educate one another, mm-hmm. and that was sort of always the vision. I think you know, uh, Harvey was one of those ones. It was just it was a great nostalgic exhibit, and then the kids really could do it because the style was, you know, the Harvey stuff. The style was just sort of timeless. It was just so charming. Yeah. Um, but it still appealed to kids. Even if they didn't have the same nostalgia factor, they'd see Casper. They might vaguely recognize Casper, but you know, they'd see all these other wonderful characters. Oh, these are cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a fun exhibit. Okay. And what, when you exhibited things there, like I know the Cartoon Art Museum, they always had like three or four rotating shows. Of course, they've moved locations too since I did that show, but uh, they didn't have just Harvey. Whereas, like, the Mocha had just Harvey. So did you have yeah. just Harvey, or did you have a couple other things exhibiting at the same time? So um, I'm trying to think what year we did Harvey. Because, like two, I said, we 2009, had 2010 was when that all was. So, yeah, so we would have had the second gallery by then. So, yeah, so there would have been another exhibit, the other gallery. We had a permanent display of art from Filmation, which was always on. Uh-huh. Um, and then um, I don't remember what exhibit was in the other gallery at that time. But chances are it was probably an animation exhibit because if we were showing comic books in one gallery, then we were usually showing you know animation in the other gallery. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, just constantly have something to build that Mm-hmm. Okay. And, 
I guess, what are some of the other exhibits you had over the years when you were in charge? Just kind of uh, curious. Because I, you know, it's, it's funny because we were going to have two galleries and we were changing exhibits about every two, three months. So, I mean, right now, in some cases, we've done 20 exhibits. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, over the course of that seven years, you're over 100 exhibits. So, I mean, there were so many great ones. Um, you know, we did ones on 90s animation and, um, uh, one of my favorites was I had a collection of original art from coloring books. Hmm. And these were just obscure. These are all from um, um, Whitman coloring books. Yeah. And um, I, I had like a hundred of these things and they were just bizarre images out of context. Um, and what we did is we, we had local comedians recapture them all. So we displayed the art with these new captions, and then we invited our guests to use post-it notes to create their own captions. <laughs> and it was it was a hilarious exhibit. It was a lot of fun, but people were checking out the art and uh-huh. really studying it and not realizing it. You know, they were there, they were you know being funny and making jokes, but they were actually really looking at that art. Mm-hmm. I loved that exhibit. Um, we did uh, a great exhibit on um, the Wonder Women which was focused not just on the character of Wonder Woman, but of women artists mm-hmm. who, you know, worked on superhero comics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably some of the proudest exhibits I did, the ones that I, I was proud of, were um, the ones on, like, Jackie Hormuz, uh, Jackie Hormuz and, and Matt Bateman, as well as sort of the spiritual history of African-American cartoons. Mm-hmm. And so celebrating their work was always just important. Anything that, you know, tied into sort of Okay, I have to interrupt here. You're, you're kind of cutting in and out here. I mean, oh. you're fine when it was the Maze Tunes part, but now, <laughs> now it's kind of. Well, I, I must be getting getting uh, shifting out of my chair. I'll stay put now. Okay, yeah, that sounds a lot clearer <laughs> there. Sorry about that. So, so if you if you could repeat the last part, and then I'll edit this part out. So, <laughs> so. What was the last thing you said? Sorry. So, uh, one of the, the, the exhibits I was most proud of were the ones that sort of had this um, uniquely Pittsburgh tie-in. Things like um, Jackie Orange was the first African-American woman comics artist, or Matt Baker, uh-huh. uh, who was one of the first black comic book artists. Pittsburgh has rich history of African-American cartoonists. And so, anything that celebrated sort of those Pittsburgh connections... Mm-hmm. Um, was always very special to me, and it's always something that was sure to bring in a, a, a good, good-sized audience. Too. So mm-hmm. those ones I have very fond memories of. Okay. And uh, you, know, you mentioned that it, it just like it just reminded me that you did a couple books that uh, were those concurrent. Like you did the book uh, called Three Little Pigs Burgers," <laughs> as told in was it Pittsburghese? <laughs> Pittsburghese. So, so my first book that I did was uh, self-published. It was I had come up with this idea of taking. Uh, I, I'm a storyteller as well as a cartoonist, so I tour all over the country. Uh, drawing stories I tell them on stage mm-hmm. and I was performing in Florida uh, the Florida Storytelling Camp and the first storyteller gets up on stage says uh, on the way I'm going to tell you a story that's both in English and, and Russian well the next storyteller sort of laughed on onto this idea now suddenly we have theme going as they try and top each other and the next storyteller says I'm going to tell you a story in English and Spanish the next storyteller I'm going to tell you a story in sign language and then it comes to me and I realize I don't speak any other languages Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I say, I'm going to tell you a story in Pittsburgh, 
and everybody goes to the synagogue, I'm going to teach in Pittsburghese. It's the language we speak in Pittsburgh. And <laughs> I gave this short little lesson, and then I, you know, on a whim told the three little Pittsburghers. So, and then that sort of, on a plane ride back from California, I was thinking, what am I going to work with next? And I said, man, well, I'm going to write this. And I started writing it out, and it was just, it was hilarious stuff. <laughs> and, um, I did a Kickstarter for the book. It, it did unbelievable. I think it raised twenty thousand dollars. You know, uh, when Kickstarter was still relatively new, mm-hmm. and um, got a lot of coverage. And the book became just so this Pittsburgh phenomenon, um, so popular that you know it was carried in all you know in our supermarkets. It was carried in uh, the Heinz History Center and and all these gift shops and stores. And finally, you know, I couldn't keep up with it. And I said, okay, well that project's not on to the next thing. And then. Um, I think it was a year and a half ago, the Heinz History Center bought the rights for the book mm-hmm. so that they could continue to produce it. So they got a brand new edition that's now out there and, and uh, is still going very, very strong. So what 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 is Pittsburghese, I guess? I mean, it's like I know kind of regional accents and things, but explain Pittsburghese to a non-Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania person. So uh, I, I believe it the New York Times once called Pittsburghese the Galapagos Islands of the English Language. <laughs> it is remarkably undisturbed by the outside world. So we have very distinct words, um, things like a gum band. A gum band is a rubber band. Um, but we also have so this unique combination of words and dialect. For example, in the South, they might say y'all. Uh, we say yins. What? Okay. okay. <laughs> and in the South, they said all y'all. We would say yins guys. Okay. okay. Um, if I were to ask you, did you eat? I'd say cheap. Yeah. Um, that, that was pretty common. Um, we have specific foods we like. We like eating a restaurant called Primanti Brothers. Mm-hmm. And you might get a chip chopped ham sandwich, mm-hmm. which is ham sliced very thin. Mm-hmm. You get Iron City beer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way you would ask someone, if you were to actually put this into a, a sort of a structured sentence, you go up to your friend and say, uh, uh, here's guys cheat chat. And say, no, it's you. You just want to go down from the neighborhood downtown, grab a couple of irons, and let you talk to Nancy Internet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, that is a very common, that you, you will hear that every day in Pittsburgh. Wow. Uh, and that is sort of a modifier. It can be um, anything. Like, I'm, uh, where are these guys going? I'm going out. Mm. Uh, Celebrities come from Pittsburgh, so I'm kind of familiar. <laughs> so you won't hear it a lot. I mean, we work very hard to sort of lose it. <laughs> um, but um, Michael Keaton's from Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, um, uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, from Pittsburgh. Mr. Rogers, of course. Is from yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah, Mr. Rogers. And yeah. you can hear the Pittsburgh accent in Mr. Rogers occasionally. Yeah. You watch the episode where he pours the Crayola back. Okay. It starts out very much Taleb Boys and Gus today we're going to start for the crayon effect. Yeah. I'm working to learn all about crayons. This is a blue crayon. 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 <laughs> crayon. <laughs> you hear this very harsh crayon instead of crayon. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's where you'll hear an occasional slip out. If you watch Mr. Rogers, you'll hear a few characters who speak with a little bit of Mr. E. Chef Rock and Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, are you from Pittsburgh originally? I am. I, okay. I am born and raised in Pittsburgh, son of a steel worker. You can't get much more Pittsburgh. Okay, so you're Steelers fan, Pirates fan, all that. Yeah. <laughs> sort of mandatory whether you are or aren't. Uh, I mean, otherwise they excommunicate you and you don't live in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now things like uh, cheesesteak is that good all over Pennsylvania or is that just Philadelphia how does that work it's, uh, Philly is, is cheesesteak is what they're known for yeah um, personally you know I travel a lot I'm not a big foodie yeah but uh, I do think that the best cheesesteak actually is this place called Peppy's in Pittsburgh mm. um, but Pittsburgh is known for a lot of Polish cuisine yeah. like pierogies yeah. Um, stuffed cabbage, lushy, things like that is, is what we're really known for. But our most best known is, is probably the Pramanti Brothers sandwich, mm -hmm. which is a sandwich with the fries and coleslaw on top of the sandwich. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. <laughs> so when we're talking here, you don't really have a, a strong accent. Is that because you uh, have done like vocal work and things like that or you just don't have a harsh accent <laughs> um i don't i i never had a real harsh accent i do um occasionally uh slip into sort of the lingo side of it uh -huh. um rather than the accent side of it so i will use a lot of the words okay um you know i do I use yins a lot and and, at and, and <laughs> gum band and buggy and all those things yeah. um but i don't have as harsh an accent and part of that is because i i, I do voiceover work and I've yeah. story I guess that's why yeah <laughs> um, my sister has it <laughs> oh okay now since you mentioned the voiceover work so what have you done and did you have any formal training for that or you just kind of lucked into it <laughs> like like everything in my life I, I decided oh, I'd like to try this okay um, probably about four, it was actually right on time left in ZM2 as I was sort of saying what am I going to do next um there was an audition for, um, for some commercials in Pittsburgh, and I, and I showed up, and they loved what I did, and um, and they just kept telling me back every time they had a commercial. They said, hey, do this, do this. And uh, so I ended up becoming sort of the voice of, you know, a man at brand air conditioners and equipment heating, uh -huh. so, which is a, a nationwide. So I really I'll be in Missouri, and I'll hear a commercial come on. I go, that's me. So, <laughs> um, so that's really sort of the thing, and then... Um, I would do. I would appear in two documentaries here and there, and uh, and I just recently I sort of worked with a company in New York that's uh, going to be doing more regular voice projects. So. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something I just always wanted to do, and just decide, okay, figure out how it's done, figure out what they're looking for, and then just try it. Mm -hmm. you now, know, and uh, I've enjoyed it. Now, have you done any cartoon voices or just the narration voiceover type stuff? It, it, mostly, it's uh, commercial work. Yeah. Um, at some point, I'd love to do you know some cartoon voices because I obviously I grew up on that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, right now it's it's mostly commercial, which uh, like I said, it's been just it's great fun and and uh, not especially difficult work, but um, takes a certain uh, skill set. Yeah, well, that's why I was asking because you know obviously the background with the museum and you're doing cartoon maze tunes in this newspaper, so you know. <laughs> Do cartoon voices like a logical extension of that? You know, so. Yeah, and, and at some point, probably. I, I hope so. You know, yeah. it's, it's like I said, it's, I do a lot of things. It's 
you know, I, I write, I draw, I, I do silly voices. <laughs> right. A little bit of everything. Now, um, you did the, I mentioned the Three Little Pigs Burgers, but uh, you actually did a book that, silly me, I forgot I actually had until I was looking, <laughs> looking it up, <laughs> you know, and I go, oh, Joe did this, oh, okay. I just bought it in the store, but a celebration of animation. Oh, yes, yes. The 100 greatest cartoon characters in television history, and, you know, I was like, do I have this book? And I was looking at my bookshelf, and I found it, like, you know, way off in the bottom corner of my bookshelf yeah. and it's like oh there it is because I didn't even think I purchased it you know but I said oh I gotta pull this out and look at this <laughs> oh that's funny so. I, I, I really wanted to call it you know the 100 greatest cartoon characters uh, to have fist fights over oh. um <laughs> because that, that that's really the purpose of the book is to, to cause but anytime you do a book of top 100 right. it should be designed to cause arguments and fights oh yeah yeah I mean, um, I, that should be the whole purpose. Yeah, I know Jer Jerry Beck's book. He had the hundred greatest Looney Tunes, and he had the hundred, uh, or the fifty greatest cartoons of all times. And you know, they're, but what about? But what about? But what about? You know, it's like, and, it, and it's great because I I visit um, Wizard World Comic Cons all over the country, and I do a panel um, that focuses on the top ten in that book, and then I spend the last twenty minutes of that panel just sort of not just defending our decisions, but turning other people outraged that you know, their favorite characters included. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's funny because the ones who are most passionate are ones who like this obscure anime character who is, you know, never even aired in the U.S. and there's only eight episodes, but right. included in the top ten greatest anime Right. So, you know, I mean, certain things are certain things are like obvious, you know, like Bugs Bunny or something like that. But I mean, when you're developing, and you, and you did this with uh, Marty Gitlin, who actually wrote a great book about uh, cereal boxes that yes, yes. I have also. But I didn't know he wrote that either. So I go, I got to start looking my authors on books that I buy. But anyway. Um, how did you come down to like get you know because I'm sure like there was probably like 20 obvious ones you know you just said oh of, yeah, course, so of course we have to have Charlie Brown of course we have to have Bugs Bunny of course we have to have you know whatever but you know like let's yeah. say did you have arguments about like on the cover you have Space Ghost saying I don't like Space Ghost or we, we had a lot of arguments on Andres so, so, so Marty had his list I had my list yeah um uh, his list, um, and, and, and we're probably, me and Marty are probably about 10 years apart, maybe, maybe not quite that much. He's a little older than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, so his stuff skewed, um, heavily towards a lot of Looney Tunes stuff, a yes. lot of Hanna-Barbera stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you're very class animation. I have three kids, but I'm also, you know, I'm a cartoon historian. I'm in a museum. So my stuff either skewed towards, um, more contemporary stuff that I felt deserved it, um, that I had seen that maybe Marty hadn't, or stuff that I felt had an enormous historical impact. Mm -hmm. um, Space Ghost is a good example of both. Yeah. Because Space Ghost is, you know, one of your first superheroes created, actually the first superhero created specifically for television. Mm. Um, you know, the, under our modern contemporary idea of superhero. Yeah. Um, and it was created specifically for TV. Superman, obviously. Okay, well, well, at least a straight character, because like I think Underdog probably yeah, predates it, but you know that's silly stuff. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know, and you have so you have that, but also you have this wonderful sort of um, you know contemporary take 
um, where, you know, Space Ghost hosted this talk show. Right. Um, so, you know, you have sort of things, and, and, and it's it's sort of amazing, uh, you know, that you're able to sort of take the, a show and give it a second life. So, you know, it's, it's longevity was a factor, mm-hmm. um, you know, the historical significance, you know, and just, you know, the honesty, and how good a character um, is it? Is it a character that um, just is really well-written or well-developed? So there's a lot of things that went into that. Mm-hmm. Now, were there any characters that you fought for and just for whatever reason, space or whatever, Marty said no, and you just couldn't get in that you wish were in the book? Um, there was probably more of that from, from Marty's side than mine, because I, I, oh. like I said, he was, he was very Hanna-Barbera. He loved Hanna-Barbera, loves Looney Tunes. I do, too. But it started to get very, very heavy uh, in Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera. So, and I really wanted to fight for uh, a little more... You know, both um, you know uh, racial diversity as well as gender diversity, which is hard to do. Yeah. Um, just historically speaking, there's not a lot of great roles for female characters and, and for characters of color. Right. Um, but I wanted to make sure there was you know reasonable representation. If a character is in there, they should deserve to be in there. Right. But we also need to just seek out and go. Oh yeah, wait a minute. Of course, this character belongs in here. Um, you know, uh, it happens to be a female character, so that's great. So, a good example of that would be a character like Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. Um, Harley's a contemporary character, but is just has such a dedicated fan base, right? And is was the first help of the sort of Batman characters to become that popular that was created for the animation. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the Batman villains pulled from, of course, comics. Or it was created for the TV show, but um, really just took on this. You know, you go to any Comic Con and there's, you know, 50 Harlequins. Right. Um, so that, that's a good example of, of one that I really thought to keep that. Yeah. And, well, you know, looking at it again, looking at the list right now, you know, you have a pretty good cross-section, and, yeah, it would get kind of redundant, even though I am a fan of Looney Tunes and everything else, it would get kind of redundant if it was all Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera. Um, especially if you're trying to say, of all time, I know of all time for some people means the 50s and 60s or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, and I'm guilty of that too, but, you know, you got to realize, you know, you got on the cover like Fairly Odd Parents, it's like, those have their charms, they have their moments, you know, Sponge Bob and everything else, and yes, they have their fans and the longevity, so that should be on there, you know. Yeah, and, and we tried to. I mean, one of the things I did, I I had to look. There's, there's, there's a lot of great contemporary characters, um, but you know, if it was contemporary, um, I looked at it and said, okay, has it made it past at least four or five seasons? Yeah. You know, um, do I think this is really going to stand a test time, or is it really that good a character? You know that. Yeah. Um, you know, people are going to remember this for, for a while. So, yeah, so this, so I think, you know, Dexter is in there, and that's, you know, contemporary. Um, yeah. And uh, I have to watch a bunch of episodes, and as I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, this is really funny stuff. <laughs> this is a good character. Yeah. I mean, if there's any dearth of anything, it's probably just like the absence of a lot of. Uh, black and white characters or silent characters like Colonel He's a Liar or something like that but I mean, you know, they're not that memorable to today's audiences so, you know yeah, that's, uh, and, and, you know um, when you, you look at sort of uh, you look at sort of the history of, of TV animation and it's, you know, I know Marty really wanted to have like Pepe Le Pew yeah. um, said, oh, he's actually only in a, he's not in that many cartoons right um, 
you know, to put him in there over, you know, say someone like Joe Spare, yeah. um, who had many incarnations, you know, yeah, I can't see that. So, so characters, and, and, and then also I looked at Pepe Le Pew, you know, we, we had an issue because we were writing this book, and then Pat Albert, just as the Bill Cosby scandal was breaking. <laughs> And we're going. Oh, what do we? How do we handle this? You know, how do? What do we do? And yeah. and the same thing was sort of with Pepe Le Pew. I go, you know, there there really is a movement against Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't think the character is that great. Um, so we're just going to cut him. But you know, you did have to take in sort of. It's unfair sometimes yeah. to impose modern sensibilities on these historical cartoons. Yeah. But at the same time you have to be cognizant of your audience. Right. And say, okay, we can educate on this level, but, you know, if it's going to offend, we don't necessarily need to do that because there's lots of other great characters. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, overall, it'd probably be better to have Fat Albert uh, than, say, Cole Black or something. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. I, I mean, and the, and the character of Fat Albert is, and the show is groundbreaking. Yeah. And, and Cosby and Truth, other than sort of coming up with the characters and doing the voices for a little while, and, and the host, he, you know, he wasn't one of the writers on the show. He wasn't one of the animators on the show. Right. He didn't look of Fat Albert, so yeah. um, it, it's just assumed that uh, such a great cartoon is, is tarnished by his, you know, right. actions. Yeah, but I mean, you could go through and probably find something on everything if you really, you know, the, you got Ren and Stimpy in there, and there's issues behind that now, and you know, it's like, but you know, absolutely. it's like it, it's absolutely. life, you know, it's like, but and, absolutely. and that's the way you just sort of have to go, like, okay, and in, in the grand scheme of things, this character is is you know the value of the character um, and its historical significance and its impact and its positive role in our culture far outweighs the actions of a creator who you know perhaps someday will be long forgotten and the characters will live on yeah yeah you know, I, I, uh, if i were to go up to any kid and say you know who created ren and stimpy they have no idea yeah they know the characters yeah. but they don't have the creator and you could even make a case, you know, I'm just going on the negative right now, you know, it's like, you know, Batman's creator, Bob Kane, you know, he wasn't really that ethical, I guess is the best way to put it, <laughs> you know, and so, no, no, you I, know, I, I, it's so like, well, you know, but Batman, everybody knows Batman, so yeah, these characters will have far, long outlive their creators, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um... So I don't know if you have any other books. So do you, do you have anything else planned at this point? Or? Yeah, I, so I have um, I have a series of, of books of mazes um, uh, from BCS uh, Publishing, okay. formerly Barron's Publishing. There is um, Amazing Animals, which are all animal mazes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is Myths and Monsters, which is mythology and monsters from around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there is Mazesilic, which is all dinosaur mazes. And my most recent one, which uh, came out in November, is Amazing America, 50 Mazes of the 50 States, which hmm. is iconic characters, landmarks, um, and just features of all 50 states. And, and that was a lot of fun to work on, a lot of research now. Now, in all these maze books, these are unique mazes? They're not ones from mazes? These, 
these are all uniquely created for the book, so these are not ones from my, um, you know, my syndication. Mm-hmm. These are all created specifically for the books. Okay. Now, are there Maze Tune books too? Like, do you compile those in any books at this time? Uh, not yet. We're working on it. You know, I have an agent out there pushing ideas constantly. So, I've got uh, probably about six different book ideas she's floating around, and Maze Tunes is one of them. So, okay. um, hopefully, you know, sometime this year, this will be the year. Now, are there any books in the planning at this time, kind of like your uh, 100 Greatest Cartoon Characters? Or? Yeah, I, I've, I've written, um, started writing and written a proposal for a book uh, called Comical Candidates, which are um, comedians and fictional characters who have run for the presidency. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's a lot of fun. It started out as an article I'd written for a newspaper, and then I've been doing it as a panel, and I said, oh, there's actually a whole book here. This is some really interesting stuff. Right. So everything from, you know, Gracie Allen from Burns and Allen to, you know, Yogi Bear. Yeah. Um, you know, and Snoopy. Yeah, and McGill Gorilla. McGill <laughs> Gorilla, yeah, and, and, you know, of course, your your characters in uh, Bloom County and, and so forth, Bill the Cat and Al- Alex Alvin from Alvin times, yeah. <laughs> trying to think of different ones. Uh, Pat Paulson, in a certain respect, even though he's a real person. Oh, but... yes, no, Pat Paulson actually was what inspired the book because I was actually <laughs> in the 2000 election, right before he passed away, I was Pat Paulson's campaign coordinator in Pittsburgh. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I like to think I got him two votes. Mm. <laughs> Um, how was he? How was he to work with? Did you work with him directly, or is it just like? A- yeah, what, what happened was um, he had seen some of my work online. This is many years ago. This is the nineties, mm-hmm. and um, was working on this series of maps he wanted to do called Pat Paulson's Cockeyed Maps of America, <laughs> and they were just completely politically incorrect, but funny. And um, he asked if I would illustrate, and uh, you know, I was. But that's, I was in my thirties, and I said, "Oh, yeah." I, First of all, I was a huge Pat Paulson fan, so yeah. Um, so we became friends through that, and then uh, you know, sadly he, he passed away far too early. But um, right. but yeah, that's how we got the work done. Oh, very good. So I guess we're getting near the end here. Um, so I always give everyone a chance to plug. Anything they're doing, past, present, or future—I mean, websites or emails or whatever you want to do—go have, have at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, of course, visit me on on mazetunes.com. Uh, support my Patreon. Uh, visit me on Twitter, Instagram. It's all mazetunes. M A Z E T O O N S. So that's the main thing to do. Uh, I am touring. I'm a nationwide, so uh, people can come and visit me at Wizard World. Come see my channels. Um, I usually do free sketches at the Comic Con, so come get a free sketch and um, you know just uh, follow me. And, and most important, if you have a local newspaper, write your local newspaper, email them, and ask them to carry Maze Tunes from Creator Syndicate. Okay, very good. And uh, Celebration of Animation is still available in bookstores, as far as I know. I got mine at a Barnes and Noble, but you can yes, all, all, the, all my books are available at bookstores and online uh, nationwide, worldwide. All right. Well, very good. And uh, any last thoughts or anything else before we close? No, just um, thank you. You know, I'm a big fan of your work. Okay. So um, it's just, you know, nice. It's a great honor to talk to you. And, and you know, just keep doing what you do. It's, uh, I love it. So, um, you know, support Mark's work, too, not just mine. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> and I want to thank you, Joe, for being a podcast guest for me. And this will probably... Uh, be on upload in a few weeks and I will let you know but uh, I thank you for being my guest today thank you very much have a great day you too have a good day bye bye
Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Joe Waz, for being my special guest. Episode number 27 will be coming soon. If you'd like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.